Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Father Paul Check, Executive Director of Courage International, giving a talk entitled Charity and Clarity, the Catholic Church and Homosexuality. Father Check's talk was a part of the Distinguished Speakers Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. <coughs> Dear Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the many blessings that you so generously pour out upon us each day of our lives, especially for the greatest gift that you have given to us, your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that he may always be the center of our hearts, the center of our thoughts, the center of our actions, and that we may receive the grace that you give us to transform our hearts to be more like his. We also desire, dear Father, to be faithful instruments of your providential love and care for those whose lives we touch. May that spirit of generosity, of fidelity, of self-sacrifice, of love and kindness that prompted the heart of your son to go to Calvary inspire us to give our hearts fully for your kingdom. We ask our Blessed Lady to put her mantle of charity and purity and humility around our hearts this evening, that we would be pleasing to you and to her in all that we say and do. And we make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, was it uh, the brownies that I see in the back there, or, or was it the promise of extra credit? that brought you out on a cool fall evening here in Steubenville. I'm very grateful for your attendance and your attention this evening and look forward to hearing the kinds of things that you're thinking about and the questions that you have. Uh, My intention here is to give a brief presentation and to share a few things with you based on my experience of this work and uh, life as a priest for 17 years now, uh, and then to want to uh, receive your questions, to know the kinds of things that you're interested in. Um, Let's start this way. How many people in the room tonight, we'll start with a little audience participation. How many people in the room tonight believe that God is good? Yeah, a lot of hands should go up there. Good, all right, hold on to that idea because we're gonna come back to that a bit later. And I, I want to continue with another question to frame our conversation. And that is, if you were asked, maybe this is not one of the study questions from your theology class that you're working on, but if you were asked for a one-word summary of the gospel, I realize that's a little bit much to ask. If you were asked to uh, summarize the gospel in what word, one word, what would you choose? Yes, ma'am. Love. Love is a very good word. How about something else? Somebody else. Hope is another good word. Faith, hope, and yes, please. Jesus. Jesus. It's going to be hard to top that. <laughs> but but we'll, we're going to keep going. Life. Life. Truth. Truth. Charity. Charity. Yeah. Gift. Redemption. Joy. Joy, thank you. That's my word. I didn't tell you that beforehand, did I? If I were going to pick a word, and all those words are good, by the way, 
I would pick joy. And the reason I say that is that our Lord himself in the farewell discourse, so that's John 14, 15, 16. In the farewell discourse, John 15, our Lord says, I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Have you heard this talk before? Okay. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you. In other words, we could take the incarnation, and everybody in the room knows what the incarnation is, right? There are some groups where I have to explain that a little bit, but not here at Steubenville. Where we could understand that the incarnation is, is the mission on the part of the Father in the Son to restore lost joy. Now, wasn't it true that our first parents lived in Eden, in paradise, where they had unending joy until they said, God, you are not our father anymore, which is one way we might understand original sin. The attempt of our first parents, Adam and Eve, to throw off the fatherhood of God. And from that, of course, they cast their descendants into a terrible state of amnesia. We forgot who we are and the sadness and misery that follows from sin, the lost identity, and the malice, of course, which is part of this. So the son comes from the father to restore lost joy. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. These things. Now I'm gonna take a little bit of a risk here because there might be a scripture scholar in the room. I'm a moral theology instructor by trade. So I'm gonna take a little bit of a risk in interpreting sacred scripture. These things, what is our Lord talking about? What is the antecedent to these things? I have told you these things. In the verse immediately preceding that, in John 15, our Lord says, I have kept the Father's commandments and I abide in his love. Now you keep the Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. These things. I don't think it's stretching or forcing the interpretation of these passages from sacred scripture to say that there's a strong connection in the mind of the God-man between joy and the commandments. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you. I have kept the Father's commandments. Now you keep the Father's commandments. The commandments. The very word sounds a little heavy, doesn't it? I am commanding you. It sounds like something that is constraining us, restricting our freedom, and imposing a burden. The commandments. We have some good students of St. Thomas here, yes? Some, some good, I, all right. Well, we're gonna do a little examination of the commandments according to the way St. Thomas would do them. Let's go through the 10 commandments and look at them not as commandments, but as something else, because all of the commandments represent virtues, virtues through which the human person expresses, hmm? personality, character, 
and reaches perfection with God's grace and fulfillment. So let's go through the commandments and understand them as Thomas would. The first commandment is the, is the virtue of spiritual childhood or fidelity. You will love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength and not have strange gods before him. This, of course, was what got our first parents into difficulty. God, you are not our father anymore. The son comes into the world to be the perfect child of God and to remind us that the only way we can enter the kingdom is, be, is by becoming as little children. Yeah. So the first commandment is the virtue of spiritual childhood, or if you like, fidelity. The second commandment is the virtue of reverence. To not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. In the Semitic cultures, there's a very close connection in the mind of the people between a person's name and the person himself or herself. It's not perhaps quite as strong in our culture, but nevertheless, probably one or two of you have people that you're very attracted to or love, and the person's name brings that image of them to mind right away such that you would defend their name if someone said something bad about the name of your beloved. Hmm? So reverence. The third commandment is the virtue of service. The most important service that we provide to God is to worship Him in the way that He has asked. For us, as Catholic Christians, that is at the Holy Mass. There was a time when St. Thomas More, you know St. Thomas More, he was at uh, Mass one day. This was before he was imprisoned in the tower. And the king sent a message to him. King Henry VIII said, I need you, Sir Thomas, as Chancellor of the realm, to come immediately to the palace. And Thomas More, receiving that message during the Mass, said, I am on service to the King of Kings, and I will come when Mass is over. Service. Fourth commandment is the virtue of pietas. Now we translate that in English as piety. And piety, we will often hear as Eucharistic piety or Marian piety, and those things are very good, of course. But pietas means that love, honor, reverence, and devotion that we offer to someone who stands in some degree in the place of God for us, the authority that they have. By the way, as long as we're doing a little Latin here, where are Latin scholars? Do we have some Latin scholars? Oh, come on. We have to have Latin scholars. The word, the, the Latin word from which we get the word authority means to give increase. So the purpose of authority is to build up, to give increase to the subject. Huh? So pietas. The fifth commandment, let's call meekness. The sixth commandment, which is of interest to us this evening in our conversation, let's call chastity. The seventh commandment is the virtue of justice. The eighth commandment is the virtue of truthfulness, or sometimes called veracity. The ninth commandment, purity of heart. And the tenth commandment we'll call temperance. Now when we think about the commandments in that way, they seem less burdensome. They are less of something that's being imposed and that which is actually within us, something that we would like to foster, something that we would like to 
have within ourselves because we admire those things in other people. Let's go to another section of the gospel for just a moment. You remember where the woman who has a hemorrhage is making her way through the crowd and she touches the hem or the tassel of our Lord's cloak. You remember that? And she's healed of something that has been troublesome to her for a long time. And the common translation that we hear of what happens in that moment is that Jesus felt the power go out of him. Well, if you look at what's called the Vulgate, which is the, the translation of the scripture into Latin, here we are at Latin again, that St. Jerome gave us, the word that he uses there is virtus, or in the accusative virtutum, Jesus felt the virtue go out of him. And in some of the older English translations, that is what you would read. Now that sounds odd to us. For someone to lose virtue doesn't sound like a good thing. But it makes the point that a virtue is a power. It's a capacity. It's something that allows us to be fully and truly human. So let's go back to what we started with. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. These things, fidelity, reverence, service, pietas, meekness, chastity, justice, veracity or truthfulness, purity of heart, and temperance. In other words, these things mark out for us in a very plain way what it means to be human. To be human means to be a child of God, to be reverent, down the line. They, the virtues mark out, if you like, for us, the design of our humanity. Now, let's take a very easy case. Suppose you and I were in conversation, and after the conversation and I left, you found out that I had been lying to you. Not that I made a mistake or that I had a bump on the head that day and forgot who I was, but that I was deliberately telling you an untruth. How would you feel? Okay, this is not a trick question. You'd feel be betrayed. How dare you? Hmm? And is anybody really arguing with the church's teaching on truthfulness, as far as you know? No, they're not. And do we really need, in a sense, the church to tell us, thou shall not bear false witness? No, we don't. There's something that wells up out of our humanity to say that the purpose of communication, whether it's spoken or written or in some other form, is to convey to the best of our ability what we believe to be true for the purpose of establishing a bond, a relationship with someone else, so that there can be an exchange. No one's arguing with that. Let's take another easy example. And I'm, and in no way am I trying to belittle uh, the topic that brings us here this evening, but we could use a little comic relief, I suppose, at some point. To me, two of the essential food groups are chocolate cake and red wine. Yes. Yeah, there you go. So, I travel a lot for my job. I give a lot of talks like this, mostly to priests and seminarians, but I'm very happy to be here at Franciscan today to have this time with you. But most, most of my time is that. So I think I looked at my mileage on Delta the other day. It's almost at 50,000 miles here in October, and there's, there's still three months left to go. 
So I'm traveling a lot, and you know what? On the airlines, they don't feed you a lot these days. Anyway, a little package of peanuts, maybe something like this. So at the end of the trip, when I get home to LaGuardia Airport or Kennedy or White Plains and a car and drive back to the rectory where I live in Connecticut, the cook who takes care of the priests in the, in the rectory where I live is a very benevolent and gracious lady, and she knows that for me, chocolate cake and red wine are two essential food groups. <laughs> so when I come home, on the sideboard is the cake and the Cabernet. Right. So it's 10 o'clock, sometimes a little bit later, no dinner, I walk in and I say, yes. This is what I've been waiting for. And so there is something in me that says, let me cut about a piece like this, 12 ounce glass, pour like this, uh-huh. And boy, now I'm really going to enjoy what I want. Now, you could easily say to me, Father, the very thing that you hope to enjoy in the chocolate cake and the red wine is going to elude your grasp because you are stepping outside the prudent limits of your nature. It's good to have a little chocolate cake and red wine. My patron saint, Paul, said to Timothy in one of the letters, stop drinking only water, take a little wine for your stomach. So we know that. We know where our Lord's first miracle is performed. The, the Psalms talk about wine. We're on board. When I was in college, 18 was the drinking age. I realize it's different now. So I'm not trying to uh, tempt you or be an occasion of sin. I'm trying to have a little bit of fun with something to make a point. Hmm? When we step outside the virtue, whichever virtue, whether it's spiritual childhood or veracity or truthfulness, or temperance, when we step outside the virtue, when we step outside our story, the very thing that we hope that we will grasp, we will lose. And of course, we call that sin. And there are a number of different ways in which, unfortunately, we can transgress like that. Now, I said a moment ago that by bringing up the church's teaching on saturated fat and refined sugar and chocolate. I'm not trying to make fun of anything that is a very serious topic. I'm not. A little bit of levity is good, but there's a point in this. And that is to say, the church as our mother and as the administrator or the receiver of the truth of our story knows who we are as God's children. And she knows the desires and the longings that have been implanted deep in the human heart, the most important or compelling of which is the desire to love and be loved. So we can just imagine easily enough that if it sounds like the church is telling an entire group of people, you cannot love and be loved in the way that you would like, that that's going to fall very hard on ears. And the response could easily be, how dare you? How dare you tell me who it is that I can give my heart to and whose heart I can receive? Because you can't possibly know who I am better than I do. And there's a kind of logic in that. 
And I think in honesty and humility, we have to say that there's a certain point that's being made there. And really, if the church is not our mother, if she doesn't understand this question of virtue, if she doesn't understand the question of our origins, and why the sacred writer in Genesis 2.18 says it is not good for man to be alone. If she doesn't understand these things, then really we have nothing to talk about here on the topic of homosexuality or chastity in general. Now the challenge, of course, for us is in this particular sphere that we have given up a lot of ground on the question of whether chastity is part of the good news. All of the words that were used when I asked the question at the beginning, mercy, redemption, Jesus, hope, love, those are all easily part of the good news, no? Simple, no one's arguing. But if we go down those commandments again, those list of virtues, all of them in Christ are part of the good news because they are the truth of who we are. And as our Lord said in John 8, to know the truth and to live the truth is to be set free. Free from what? Ignorance, confusion, fear, anxiety, and malice from sin. It's only because there is something that the church has understood and received about our story from where we have come and where we are going, that we can have a kind of conversation here this evening. Okay, that is the preparation for what I hope is gonna be a good Q&A. That, what we've done there in 20 minutes or so is Christian Anthropology 101 in a paragraph. Huh? There's a lot more to be said about Christian Anthropology, but for our purposes this evening, this is a question about who are we? Where are metaphysicians? Who's studying metaphysics? Oh, come on, I don't see more hands go up. Not enough hands. Adjure seguitur essay means action follows being, yes. When I was a young philosophy student many years ago, I was frankly foolish and stupid because I thought what in the world does metaphysics have to do with the real world? What does that have to do with pastoral care? Why are we studying this? Now, 17 years into the priesthood, I understand much better the importance of the science of metaphysics. And this question of who are we? What is something is foundational, again, to our discussion this evening. So let's take an easy example. When I was growing up, which was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, as far as most of you are concerned, <laughs> If I wanted to listen to music, I took a box and I inserted it into another box. <laughs> and the first thing that you got was a very bad hiss. And maybe if you were careful, you heard the music too. That contraption was called an eight-track tape player. You probably have no idea what an eight-track tape player is. If you Google it tonight, or you go to eBay, you might see one. But if I had an eight-track tape player here today and I put it on the podium, you would say, Father, what is that? Because you of the digital age would not be familiar with an eight-track tape player. And so I would say, well, 
yeah, when I was growing up, this is how we listened to music. You put a box in there and, and maybe you heard the music. The question, though, is very metaphysical. The idea that something is for something, and if you know what that is, and you use it in accordance with what it's designed for, it'll do what it's supposed to do, albeit badly, in the case of the fidelity here, it's very natural for us to ask that question. What is this? What is it for? So if we're going to do that with 8-track tape players, today we're doing it with the human person. What is the human person for? I quoted Genesis 2.18 a little while ago. Someday, a lot of you are going to get married, and some of you, for your first reading, are probably going to choose that reading. It is not good for man to be alone. It's often chosen for a nuptial mass, and that's, it's a good choice. And, of course, it's the story of how Eve is created to complete Adam, because Adam is incomplete. I have a friend who teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, his name is Jay Budashevsky. His writings are very fine, and he describes the human person as being blessedly incomplete. It's a very good des description. But even after Eve is created, there's still more to be said here about it is not good for man to be alone. That also tells us something about how God is the fulfillment of the human person and the human soul. So what are we made for? We are made for love, to give and receive love, to know and be known in a personal way. And it is that self-giving that is most attractive to us. We don't always live it well, but the people that we admire are people who are generous with their hearts. Joe was telling you that I was an officer in the Marine Corps before I entered the seminary. And a lot of people say, Father, how did you get from the Marine Corps into the priesthood? And I have had a glass of wine tonight, but I'm not gonna sing for you the third verse of the Marine Corps hymn. <laughs> so I'll just recite it. Maybe another glass and I would sing it for you, but I'm not gonna do that. The, the third verse of the Marine Corps hymn is this. Um, Here's health to you and to our Corps, which we are proud to serve. In many a strife, we fought for life and never lost our nerve. If the Army and the Navy ever look on heaven's scenes, they will find the streets are guarded by United States Marines. <laughs> so there it is, simple, right? Marine Corps priesthood. No, that's, that's the funny answer. The real answer is, I think the Marine Corps taught me about fatherhood. My Marines were my sons. And that's the model I, was, I grew up with in the Marine Corps. These are your sons, treat them like that. So from the kind of moral fatherhood to the spiritual fatherhood. But what's the point about the Marine Corps? In one of my assignments, I worked for a man who in the Vietnam War had been a young trooper, and he was in a firefight one night, was in combat, and one of the enemy soldiers threw a hand grenade into the position where he was with his men, with his buddies. A hand grenade is a, is a handheld bomb, you know, and you throw that in, it can certainly... Uh, wound or even kill people. When that grenade fell into the position where he was, he dove on it. Now, thanks be to God, that grenade was a dud. It did not go off. But he didn't know that at the time. He thought, this is a, presents a danger to my buddies, and I'm going to dive on that to save them. 
He was written up for the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award that our country gives to uh, valor in combat. And because probably, probably because uh, it did not go off, uh, he was awarded the Navy Cross, which is one step down. Now that ribbon, the Navy Cross, is blue, white, blue. It's red, worn at the top of the ribbons, closest uh, to the to the center. Nothing takes precedence over it except the Medal of Honor. And in this command, everybody knew what the CEO had done, but he never talked about it. But they all knew that this man not only talked, but he had walked, walked the walk. Self-giving generosity, self-sacrifice. Our Lord said it, farewell discourse again. Greater love hath no man, but he lay down his life for his friends. This is what we're made for. And we recognize it in people and we see it in people, but it's hard for us to live because we deal with something that my patron saint calls the old man. How many people here deal with the old man? All the hands ought to go up, right? We deal with him every day. The good I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I want to avoid, that is what I do. Hmm? It's the old man. So self-giving is something that we easily recognize in people, but we find it hard to do because we, rec we, we wrestle with this selfishness. But self-giving is what we're made for. And so when Christ comes into the world, not only to restore lost joy, he's restoring our understanding of what we're made for, self-gift. One of the most quoted lines from the Second Vatican Council comes from the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world called Gaudium et Spes, Gaudium, joy et Spes, hope, paragraph 24. And it says that man finds fulfillment in the sincere gift of himself, not in the taking of that big piece of chocolate cake and the red wine. The fulfillment comes in the self-giving. So, chastity is that virtue that makes self-giving according to our story, according to our design, according to the virtues, possible. If we think of chastity only as a restraint, as what we are not doing, then we are not understanding the fullness of the virtue. All virtues have sort of two movements. One is to hold back the old man, let's say, and the other is to move in the direction of the good and the true and the beautiful. In this case, self-gift, and in that intimate realm, which is itself an icon of Christ's love for the church. And here, of course, I'm talking about marriage. So these are the things, dear friends, that if you like, undergird the church's understanding of the many different ways in which our desire for love and affection can be misdirected. And there are many ways, sadly, because the old man is always trying to pull us away from the fulfillment for which we're made. So when we're speaking about the intimate realm, when we're talking about chastity, there are a number of different ways that that can happen. Masturbation, pornography, fornication, cohabitation, adultery. 
contraception, artificial insemination, in vitro fertilization, and homosexual behavior, behavior, I said. All of those things in some way bring the person into collision with themselves. Let's use that as our definition for sin tonight. Sin brings me into collision with myself, which means that what I am reaching for, what I think is going to bring me some fulfillment is actually not going to do that because I'm stepping outside the limits of the virtue. Therefore, I will be in collision with myself or I will be at cross purposes with myself. It's easy to see with lying. It's easy to see with regard to intemperance, with regard to food or drink. It may not be quite as easy to see with regard to chastity, but it's there. It's there. Because we're made for self-forgetful, self-giving love in this way. Now, one of the reasons why I think there's a sort of, there's a difficulty that the church has in proclaiming the truth of this with regard to the homosexual question is because we're perhaps not as consistent in our proclamation of chastity as part of the good news when it comes to these other things. And we need to be, because all of them in some way bring us into collision with ourselves. I'm going to go back to Thomas for a moment. In the Contra Gentiles, which is Thomas's um, book, his catechetics, so to speak, for the unbaptized, he, defi- he describes sin this way, he defines sin this way as this way. He says, we don't offend God except insofar as we do harm to ourselves. That's a good definition of sin. We don't offend God except insofar as we do harm to ourselves. Now, it's easy to see why that would be sinful because sin harms the thing that God loves the most, which is you. And that's why God hates sin, because it does harm to something that is so precious to him. So all of those things that I I listed a little while ago, all of those things are contrary to the virtue of chastity and in some measure do harm to us. The most quoted line from the Second Vatican Council comes from that second, at least under the, under the, under the pontificate of John Paul II, St. John Paul II, comes from that same pastoral constitution of the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 22, Christ, the new Adam, fully reveals man to himself and his most high calling. Christ tells us who we are because after original sin, we suffered terrible amnesia. We forgot our identity. We forgot our Father in heaven. And because we didn't know who we are, we didn't know what to do or how to, be, how to act. So Christ comes and he's the perfect embodiment of all of the virtues. And he lives an intensely happy human life. Please don't forget that. I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. We can't give what we don't have. Jesus lived an intensely happy human life because he lived in the Father's love. He kept the commandments. He lived the virtues. I don't say that there wasn't suffering or the cross. Obviously, all those things were there. But he lived an intensely happy human life. And he wants us to have that fulfillment too if we live in a way consistent with our nature. 
Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.